Welcome to episode 75 of the Truth Quest podcast, the truth about the anti-federalist. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you are on social media and topics such as Trump derangement syndrome, Edward Snowden, California wildfires, white privilege, impeachment, or negative interest rates comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. Episodes are available on Google Play Music, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. The video version of the podcast are available on YouTube, BitChute, and Brighton. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Facebook and Twitter advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for that URL. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you have probably recognized one overarching theme throughout many of the TruthQuest podcast episodes, that being how bastardized the Constitution has become. I often say we live in a post-constitutional America. While I'm far from the only modern observer to recognize this rather obvious fact, there's a group of people from over 200 years ago who predicted our current circumstances. They were known as the Anti-Federalists. The Anti-Federalists are typically thought of as a group of founding fathers that opposed the new Constitution, those who refused to sign it. Ilana Mercer, writing for Mises.org, points out that, quote, on the eve of the Federal Convention and following its adjournment in September of 1787, the Anti-Federalists made the case that the Constitution makers in Philadelphia had exceeded the mandate they were given to amend the Articles of Confederation and nothing more, end quote. Most historians consider their greatest legacy, the Bill of Rights, as many of their suggestions made it into the first ten amendments of the Constitution. States refused to ratify the Constitution without those specifically spelled out limitations. I, however, consider their greatest legacy the numerous predictions they made when assessing provisions of the Constitution. Much of what the Anti-Federalists predicted would be the result of the Constitution actually turned out to be true. The Federalists favor a strong, more dynamic national government and probably should have been called nationalists rather than Federalists, while the Anti-Federalists desired a union where the states would be the dominant force, not this newly formed federal government. Some delegates to the Constitutional Convention felt that the Constitution as written did not do enough to protect the states from the usurpation of power by the federal government. Both sides, though, were in favor of federalism to a certain extent. The Federalist moniker was grabbed first, and those who opposed their point of view were coined Anti-Federalists. But when push comes to shove, the Anti-Federalists were more Federalists than the so-called Federalists. So the Federalists get most of the historical tension, that's clear. Hell, even I fell into that trap when I committed three episodes to the Federalist Papers. See episodes 43, 44, and 45. So the Anti-Federalists agreed in practice that a centralized government would be advantageous for promoting and protecting commerce for military purposes against foreign enemies and to maintain order among the states. But they ardently believed that the main purpose of the centralized government was to secure the maximum amount of individual liberty. Robert Yates, writing as Brutus, more on him in a minute, commented on the Constitution this way, quote, But if, on the other hand, 
This form of government contains principles that will lead to the subversion of liberty if it tends to establish a despotism, or worse, a tyrannical aristocracy, then if you adopt it, this only remaining asylum for liberty will be shut up, and posterity will excrete your memory." End quote. See, they thought that both the president and the senate would be held by an aristocracy, and there would be no incentive for either one to keep the other in line. Hello, can you say establishment? I mean, we went from Bush to Clinton to Bush to Obama to Trump with the membership of the Senate remaining relatively unchanged. Nothing really ever changes. Think about it. If the colonists wanted to be united under a strong centralized government, they could have stuck with the king. They wanted to break the reins of that centralized power. Richard M. Gamble wrote, quote, The Anti-Federalists saw a conspiracy to rob the American people of the liberties recently preserved by them in the war against Britain, end quote. Some of the more famous Anti-Federalists include George Mason, Elbridge Gerry, Samuel Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Richard Henry Lee, Edmund Randolph, and Patrick Henry. Some of the lesser-known Anti-Federalists include Luther Martin, John Francis Mercer, and Robert Yates. As the state ratification debates raged, a series of letters were published in newspapers, primarily in New York and Virginia, in order to sway their respective legislature's votes for or against the ratification of the Constitution. The Federalist Papers were pro-Constitution and were written by the pen name Publius, John Jay, James Madison, and Alexander Hamilton. What became known as the Anti-Federalist Letters were written by a series of writers using various pen names, including the Letters of Cato, the Letters of Sentinel, Essays of Brutus, now that's the Robert Yates guy I just mentioned a minute ago, who happened to be a judge in New York at the time. Others included The Federal Farmer, The Maryland Farmer, and The Impartial Examiner. Some of the more prescient objections that the Anti-Federalists had were related to the ambiguity of the necessary and proper general welfare and the supremacy clauses in the Constitution, which were, in their eyes, windows into limitless federal powers. As Robert Yates, writing as Brutus, put it after quoting from the Necessary and Proper and the Supremacy Clause, essentially he asked the questions, what's the point of the separate states? They are essentially being gobbled up and left with no rights. The Anti-Federalists were also concerned with the idea of a standing army, even in peacetime, and they were extremely skeptical of the judiciary established by the Constitution. More on that in a minute. But the theme of all of their objections always centered on the loss of power by the states. Summed up by Brutus, quote, They may so exercise this power as entirely to annihilate all the state governments and reduce this country to one single government. And if they may do it, it is pretty certain they will, for it will be found that the power retained by individual states, small as it is, will be a clog upon the wheels of the government of the United States. The latter, therefore, will be naturally inclined to remove it out of the way. End quote. One of the reasons the Anti-Federalists sought to oppose or at least limit government centralization was the sheer difficulty of legislating for a, such a large and diverse population. The Anti-Federalists thought that free republic governments could only thrive over relatively small, homogeneous territories. The U.S. certainly does not qualify. Robert Yates, writing as Brutus, explained this concept. So he spent several paragraphs of his introductory letter asking the question, how representatives in a nation as vast as the United States, as it contains at that point three million souls, as he called it, and he said it is capable of containing much more than ten times that number. He goes on to say, 
How could these people possibly represent the people from their districts? For the republic to work, the representatives needed to know their constituents. He argued that clashes between different regions would occur, quote, in a republic of such vast extent as the United States, the legislature cannot attend to the various concerns and wants of its different parts. It cannot be sufficiently numerous to be acquainted with the local condition and wants of the different districts, and if it could, it is impossible, end quote. So when you think about how relevant this argument is today, the population today is a hundred times what it was back then. The country is way more diverse ethnically and regionally, and thanks to the Permanent Apportionment Act of 1929, the number of House members is permanently capped at the level of the 1910 census, or 435. So the Constitution says there should be one congressman for every 30,000 citizens. Therefore, if you do the math, there should be about 10,000 members of Congress. I think that would be a wonderful thing because absolutely nothing would get done in D.C. But the point is that the 435 people representing 320 million fulfills the prediction of the Anti-Federalists of these folks have no clue who they're representing. I mean, do you know your congressman? Anti-Federalist writer Sentinel wanted more time to debate, revise, and correct the Constitution. He wasn't interested in destroying it. His main argument was that lost liberty would never be regained, and once gained, power would never be relinquished. I mean, can you say amen, bro? That's exactly what's happened in America today. Gary M. Galls, writing for Foundation for Economic Education, explained, quote, Today Brutus would conclude that he had been far too optimistic. The federal government has grown exponentially larger than he could ever imagined, far exceeding its constitutionally enumerated powers, despite the Bill of Rights' constraints against it. The result burdens citizens beyond his worst nightmare, end quote. One of the strongest and most prophetic arguments against the Constitution as written were the anti-federalist view of the judiciary. They had a high level of suspicion over the judicial branch and did not buy the argument made by Publius, or the Federalist Papers, that this branch of government would be the weakest of the three. They suggested that matters previously subject to state jurisdiction would be pulled into the judicial orbit. Robert Yates, writing as Brutus, put it this way, quote, The judicial power of the United States is to be vested in a Supreme Court and in such inferior courts as Congress may have from time to time ordained and established. The power of these courts are very extensive. Their jurisdiction comprehends all civil causes, except such as a rise between citizens of the same state, and it extends to all cases in law and equity arising under the Constitution. One inferior court must be established, I presume, in each state at least with the necessary executive officers appendant thereto. It is easy to see that in the common course of things, these courts will eclipse the dignity and take away from the respectability of the state courts. These courts will be in themselves totally independent of the states, deriving their authority from the United States and receiving from them fixed salaries. And in the course of human events, it is to be expected that they will swallow up all the powers of the courts in the respective states, end quote. And that is exactly what has happened. He goes on, quote, the dangers arising from giving the judiciary its power to review and decide on the constitutionality of the actions of other branches. He points out that, one, there's no power above them that can correct their errors or control their decisions. Two, they cannot be removed from office or suffer a diminution of their salaries for any error in judgment or want of capacity. And three, the power of this court is in many cases superior to that of the legislature. 
He goes on to warn that, quote, men placed in this situation will generally soon feel themselves independent of heaven itself, end quote. So this is a fascinating argument because it's not really accurate. Number one, there is a power above the Supreme Court. The states can ignore any and all unconstitutional opinions, as can the executive and the legislative branches. Number two, judges can be removed from office via impeachment, as has happened on occasion See episode 68, The Truth About Impeachment, for a deep dive on that topic. And number three, in a manner of speaking, this warning has come true in that whatever the Supreme Court says seems to become law. I mean, supposedly they offer opinions, but those are accepted by the executive and legislative branches and the people as rulings or laws. They have become a a super legislative body. I mean, think about what they've done. They've dictated an ungodly amount of unconstitutional public policy to the American people including, but I'll tell you what, far from limited to Dred Scott, uh, much of the New Deal legislation, that is, after FDR threatened to pack the court. What about Japanese internment camps or applying the Bill of Rights to the states via the Incorporation Doctrine and the 14th Amendment or the National Bank or Plessy v. Ferguson, segregation, a right to privacy, which was then turned into a right to abortion, gay marriage, no probable cause, drunk driving checkpoints, confiscation of private property, Obamacare. I mean, the list is endless as liberal judges opine based on their political leanings rather than interpreting the Constitution. When I discuss the Supreme Court, I often reference the Constitution's death by a million bad precedents, where the court opines on one case in an unconstitutional manner And that unconstitutional precedent is used in a subsequent case to rule in another unconstitutional manner. Well, the Anti-Federalists predicted this phenomenon. Brutus wrote, quote, Perhaps nothing could have been better conceived to facilitate the abolition of the state governments than the constitution of the judicial. They will be able to extend limits on the general government gradually and by sensible degrees and to accommodate themselves to the tempers of the people. One adjudication will form a precedent to the next, and this to a following one, end quote. He went on to argue that rulings derived from whatever the court decided would effectively have the force of law due to the absence of a constitutional means to control their adjudications and correct their errors. This, of course, would compound over time in a silent and imperceivable manner through precedents that build on one another. And that's exactly what has occurred. Progressivism in action. One precedent leads to another bad opinion, which leads to another one. No impeachment of judges for judicial activism, no nullification or ignoring of their unconstitutional opinions by the states or the other two branches of government. It's really sad to see the checks and balances break down. Liana Mercer summed up the Anti-Federalist predictions well when she wrote, quote, While judicial review was intended to curb Congress and restrain the executive, in reality, the unholy judicial, legislative, and executive federal trinity has simply colluded in an alliance that has helped to abolish the Tenth Amendment, end quote. So let's end this episode with a rapid-fire review of some of the Anti-Federalist predictions. They were right about the abuse of federal power by way of the Necessary and Proper Clause. Despite the popular and highly ignorant belief, this clause does not mean anything and everything. Nor was it meant to be the elastic clause. It is very clear Congress has the power, quote, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper to carry into execution the foregoing powers, end quote, 
What foregoing powers, you might ask? Well, considering that this clause resides at the end of Article 1, Section 8, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look back at the preceding paragraphs and determine what those foregoing powers were. In those 18 paragraphs, we see that the Founding Fathers were clearly limiting the powers of the federal government. As discussed in detail in Episode 3, The Truth About the Constitution, here's a breakdown of the 18 paragraphs. Six of them concern the military and the militia, which makes sense. You gotta have a centralized military rather than one for every state. Four of them were concerning money and taxes. Okay, you gotta have one currency and you gotta have some form of tax collection. One paragraph was concerning commerce. Now, while the Commerce Clause has been badly bastardized over the years, it made sense to regulate some commerce between the states. One paragraph concerned naturalization and bankruptcy. One paragraph concerns the post office and post roads. One paragraph concerns copyrights and patents. Another was concerning federal courts. One paragraph was concerning maritime crimes. Another one talked about the governance of the District of Columbia. All of that is followed by the Necessary and Proper Clause. So when you think about it, even the Anti-Federalists could not have conceived of a federal government with the power to regulate or dictate things such as marriage, health care, education, gun control, labor laws, abortion, pensions, student loans, bailouts of corporations, carbon dioxide emissions, welfare programs, farm subsidies, pharmaceuticals, foreign aid, infrastructure spending, drugs. The Anti-Federalists were right about the abuse of the federal power by way of the General Welfare Clause as well. Despite the popular and highly ignorant belief, this clause does not allow Congress to write whatever laws they deem as impacting the general welfare. It does not permit the elaborate public works that sprung up by way of citing this clause. The truth about the General Welfare Clause is that it means that any taxes, any money spent must be done for the entire country, not for a section of or special interest. Get it? General Welfare? And no, it doesn't make any difference that the Supreme Court has opined otherwise. They are wrong, and their opinion is null and void. The Anti-Federalists were right about the abuse of federal power by the Supremacy Clause. So despite the popular and highly ignorant belief, this clause does not mean the Constitution overrides the laws of the states. The truth about the Supremacy Clause is that exactly what it says. Only laws which are made in pursuance of the Constitution are supreme. As the Tenth Amendment Center has argued, quote, the Supremacy Clause only becomes part of the discussion when state and federal law actively conflict. For example, if South Carolina were attempting to regulate commerce across state lines, then one could make an argument that the Constitution delegates the power to regulate interstate commerce to the federal government and not a state power, end quote. The Anti-Federalists were right about the abuse of power by the judiciary. Despite the popular and highly ignorant belief, the Supreme Court does not have the sole power to interpret the constitutionality of a law. And no, their opinions are not laws, nor are they rulings. They are opinions. There are two areas in which the Anti-Federalists did not foresee issues with the Constitution as written, that being the Commerce Clause and the Incorporation Doctrine in the 14th Amendment, which of course they would have no idea about, both of which have been used to enlarge the federal government well beyond its constitutional bounds. 
Despite the popular and highly ignorant opinion, the Commerce Clause does not grant the federal government the right to regulate commerce that is wholly interstate in nature. Nor does the substantial effect caveat granted by an old Supreme Court opinion change that fact. Nor is it the Everything Clause justifying almost any conceivable federal intervention. As far as the incorporation doctrine and the 14th Amendment goes, I would recommend you check out episode 37 for a deep dive in that subject. Unfortunately for the country, much of what the Anti-Federalists predicted has come true. The Constitution has been successfully neutered via the Necessary and Proper, the Supremacy, and the General Welfare Clauses. All of them have been used by progressives to argue to the courts that certain federal actions are constitutional, and the Supreme Court has been all too willing to oblige. The result has been over 200 years of constitutional erosion as the federal government has grown to its current size with virtually unlimited and undelegated abusive powers. Many conservatives complain the Constitution isn't taught anymore in school. I would take it a step further. As important as that is for all Americans to understand the Constitution, those who voice legitimate opposition to it get even less attention in history class. If the evidence of the accuracy of the Anti-Federalist predictions were common knowledge, the federal government's size and scope would at least be questioned, and maybe, just maybe, it could be reined in back to its Article 1, Section 8 box that the Constitution put it in originally. The Anti-Federalists deserve our attention. I hope this episode whet your appetite and you go in search of more information about these forgotten, clairvoyant founding fathers. Please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.